Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, and especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Trilon Cinema. You can buy tickets to the movie we're about to talk about at Trilon.org. Uh, the, uh, my name is Jason Daphnis, and you can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. Hello, hello. Tis I, Harry Mackin. You can find me on Shitaki Harry on Twitter. In there. Right, right. Uh, I'm sorry, that's very insensitive. I think we should maybe start over. Uh, we should maybe start over the recording. It's very insensitive. No, I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at Arby, please. Well, I didn't know we were going to have special guest Jason Statham on the episode, but I expect that that uh, oh, particular, right. yeah, that 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 particular right, right. Uh, accent to stay throughout the, the entire episode um, and not be dropped or lessened or weakened throughout. Uh, because don't know what you're talking about, do I, love? This f- is just how I talk, how I've always sounded. You can check the tapes, isn't it, right, right? Roll it back. Every, guys, roll it back. My producer has to, he's got to do some stuff. Uh, while we're waiting on him, uh, it's very appropriate that we have Jason Statham as our very special uh, uh, guest for this episode because we're talking about uh, Passport to Pimlico, another 1949 Ealing comedy uh, on uh, or rather playing at the Trilon this weekend, uh, starting Friday, August 7th. Get your tickets at Trilon.org if this movie sounds like something you'd want to see. We still have yet to discover why. The, it's it's like that uh, 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 Mr. Show sketch with the pre-taped call-in show, um, because we're, we keep recording episodes for movies that are not playing yet uh, in anticipation of them playing. So maybe after you've seen this, check out this episode, or maybe if we don't talk about it enough, you can go see it after listening. Uh, but it is, again, a 1949 um uh, Ealing comedy. That's of course a specific production house uh, in post or I guess mid and post-war Britain. Um, this film, uh, I'll let Aaron take it away with a summary of, uh, of who made it, why, and uh, what it's about. Yeah. Uh, 1949 Passport to Pimlico directed by Henry Cornelius. Uh, it is the second film we've recorded on to feature the word passport in the title. The other being a cult is my passport. That's just a cult is trivia. my passport to Pimlico. Uh, that would be the worst movie of all time. I think uh, a combination of those two movies would be very bad, but it, uh, this is an okay movie. It was a film by the Ealing studio. Jason, you mentioned that uh, British film studio. We had recorded on kind hearts and coronets as well. Uh, and this kind of follows in that trend of slightly dark, kind of more satirical comedies. Um, Pimlico uh, passport Pimlico specifically follows the residents of Pimlico, which is an area of central London, um, as they have an identity crisis after learning that they are legally not actually British citizens. Um, A leftover bomb from World War II explodes and a collection of old artifacts kind of below uh, the area that they're living in 
um, belonging to the now very dead Charles VII, who was the Duke of Burgundy, um, are kind of brought to light and revealing that the citizens are all actually members of Burgundy and not actually England. Um, and then excited by the power and freedom that this allows them, uh, specifically in the context of post-war England, the citizens of Pimlico struggle to come to terms with their newfound identity. That's my summary. Thank you, Aaron, for the summary. So it is, of course, sort of a comedy of errors, so to speak, um, a series of uh, failures on behalf of the newly formed, uh, I guess, nascent government in uh, in what is comes to be known as what is it? Is it just is it called Burgundy or an extension of Burgundy? What is what do they yeah. what do they call it? I mean, they yeah. kind of keep switching between calling it Pimlico yeah. still and Burgundy. Maybe well, maybe really appropriately. That Pimlico <sighs> is sort of the capital of this new. We can't do this. Sovereign nation. So the hey, new guys, sorry, what did I miss? Uh, you missed uh, it, our very special. Our, okay. Oh, oh, Jason. Uh, yeah, Jason, yeah, Jason. Uh, Jason had to go. Uh, the the Aaron Grossman summary did bring his heart rate down beneath um, one eighty, which, as you all know, he has to keep he has to keep elevated at all times. So he did have to run uh, and take care of that. I don't know if he'll be back. Uh, perhaps after he's got it uh, running again. Um, so apologies about that, but I will be taking over while he is away. We only have the one mic. So when he did he just leaves, stop in to use your bathroom? Like what, what was the uh, situation? We sort of have a. Um, an agreement. So I sort of, yeah. Say no more. Say no more. Yeah. Sure. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. Well, uh, anyway, uh, Pimlico is a region, of course, in central uh, London. And the background there, which I thought increased my understanding of what the movie is, um, is that it, it sort of went up and down uh, in in terms of like economic, uh, uh, I don't know, health. Um, and sort of declined at the end of the 1800s with, a, it was basically known as the slums. Uh, and then toward the mid century 1900s started to uh, resurge again. So amid that, and right after the war, it was one of the places that apparently wasn't too destroyed during the war. Um, and this, I guess, movie is, is, was a way for them to leverage some of that cultural milieu into comedy. Um, one of the first things that we get, one of the first elements of world building we get is a newspaper headline being used to wrap up a fish, uh, explaining that there is a heat wave um, throughout London and that that is going to set the stage for uh, a lot of the tension and I mean, quote unquote tension, it's still a comedy. Some of the tension and like great equalization that that brings. Think about like really well-known heat, uh, heat wave dramas and and films that that use that as like an element of uh something that 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 puts everybody on the same level that like equalizes like makes uh flat the the sort of i guess nobody has advantage because everybody's fucking hot and depressed and just like stays inside all the time um that that made me think about how toward the end of this movie particularly i got thinking more about the heat wave I think this is one of my, uh, I think this movie was fine. Uh, I, I did the letterbox thing where like I rated it like two and a half because no, no insult to the film, but it is like a 1949 British comedy. I think it is not as like, uh, you know, immediately catchy, uh, you know, content wise or comedically as, as kind hearts and coronets, for example. But, uh, I did give it like a two and a half on letterbox and I sat there for like five seconds, felt bad and then gave it a three. Uh, that being said, I do think that the heat wave element of this film is very underutilized. There are a lot of classic heat wave films and this, this movie does not deliver in that department. It's only referenced like three times. It's not as good. 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I think we should. I'll go ahead and, and make my sort of um, caveat statements while uh, Jason's still out of the room. Like, I don't think we're we're sort of pretty un- unqualified. Um, not that we're sort of always un- underqualified to discuss these films, but especially this one, right? Like, this is a movie that is like extremely um, enmeshed in a really specific context of uh, like very soon after post World War Two. Um, after uh, World War II rationing is just sort of subsiding. This was uh, made in 1949, and it's looking back just a, a couple of years toward the end of World War II in Britain and the sort of seismic shift and so- social changes that were occurring around those times. Um, I don't think any of us know a whole ton about this, right? Um, it's also... It's it's funny that that Aaron called it sort of similar to Kind Hearts and Coronets, Uh as an uh, Ealing comedy, because like, it's, it's not tonally, right? Like this is, it's a very funny movie in in terms of its tone in that it, it's like, it came off as like really pedestrian to me and like really slight and uh, kind of a breezy way, which actually kind of made it fun to watch in my opinion, is that like, it, it sort of has this very brusque sort of um, flighty fun uh, perspective on everything, including all of the characters. Jason, you described it as farcical, which I think is really um, well characterized, right? Because it, it's sort of like, it's not taking really anything that seriously, including the sort of socio-political context that it's playing with and in um, to the point where like the the Wikipedia, sorry, we didn't do a ton of research other than Wikipedia as usual. Um, but the, the Wikipedia page is, is um, really good reading to get you started. But even the theme section of that Wikipedia and the sort of critical uh, readings surrounding it sort of felt a little bit like they were taking things too seriously in my mind, where like this movie was so, it felt like interested primarily in, in being sort of um, breezy, but I don't, I don't know how it struck you guys. Yeah. I think, I think part of that is that, you know, it does feel quite a bit different, like tonally, uh, from Kind Hearts and Coronets, but I think it does do. Um, I mean, the Ealing Studio made a ton of films, like a, a ton of movies, uh, multiple movies every single year, right? But I think if you think of the ones that they're known for mostly, I mean, Kind Hearts and Coronets is a great example. Uh, the Lady Killers as well, the original Lady Killers. Um, Lavender Hill Mob, which I haven't seen, but I un- my understanding is it's the same way, is that they are films that have a very kind of catchy premise from the get-go, right? Um, I mean, Kind Hearts and Coronets, once you hear the premise of that movie, it's very easy to understand why that might be still an enjoyable movie to watch today. The same thing with this. I think there's something very interesting uh, about the idea of the small little area kind of it's being classic. independence. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been it's something that's been replicated in, I mean, pretty much every animated comedy show, right? Uh and, and I think there's a reason for that. And I think it kind of fits in with other Ealing Studios movies that I've seen in that regard. Um, just to get my two cents in there, I don't think I'll have anything starkly different to say sentiment wise uh, from the rest of these three fine fellows. Um, easy enough watch. Um, I imagine part of the reason that this movie didn't gain traction, um, you know, later on, uh, I guess like, people kind of do still talk about kind hearts and coronets kind of um at least more so than than this movie i hadn't heard of it uh until trilon announced that they were showing it um but it is very much ingrained as we've 
kind of touched on ingrained in a certain time period and movies can get away with that if there are other things to kind of buoy it and like make it more memorable or, or kind of give it legs later on in, in other ways. Like the, the heat wave as an undercurrent would have been a nice thing for the movie to lean on. It just didn't lean on it or much of anything else. Um, Harry had a, uh, a moment near the end, uh, which I thought was pretty emblematic of our experience where this movie just forgot that it had characters uh, and then it kind of brought them back. They kind of had arcs, but it didn't really do enough to distinguish them uh, from one another. It was mostly just the collective horde uh, in my mind. Maybe you guys felt differently, Um, but, but yeah, uh, it was also a cool and crisp, like what, 84 minutes. So pretty, pretty high floor film there. I, I guess all things said and done. High floor is a really nice way to describe this, I think. And like, I don't want to just express my opinion over and over again. Right. But like, I found this, I found the fact that the the movie sort of drops in and out of following characters and sort of tells a lot of its plot via literal uh, newspaper headline, which it cuts away to like six or seven times, especially in the back half of the movie, when literally every plot point is communicated to us through different physical media assaulting the screen, uh, sometimes with voiceover. There's a really good part where uh, they actually do TV interviews with the families that are part of the New Burgundy. But and what's interesting about that is that the, the same things that make this movie feel sort of breezy and slight uh, also kind of make it, um, uh, it sounds sort of condescending to call it quaint, but, but a little bit quaint and a little bit just um, fun as an artifact, right? Where it was just like, this was just sort of like, it, it, the plot makes it easy to watch because we're jumping between all sorts of different situations and A and B plots. And instead of following, well, there's a, there's a very well-established central conflict that Aaron characterized that all of these other sub sort of um, conflicts or reactions arise out of. And we follow each of those tendrils rather than following characters themselves. So it's an unusual movie in that way, but that makes it sort of easy to just sort of like go along with, right? Like we're watching the sort of, uh, destiny of a young burgeoning, uh, nation. And it's, uh, it's fun to watch that, right? Like, even though I, the humor is not big, uh, and it's, it's more about sort of the inherent silliness of the situations that arise than it is about telling jokes or being funny in a sort of traditional comedic sense, but that made it sort of fun to watch. And like, maybe just as importantly, I don't think it makes any big missteps, uh, Right. We're like, I think that that it's it's sort of funny and cute that these characters are so greed motivated, but we still root for them. And the British Empire doesn't come off necessarily as um, as evil, but they don't come off as benevolent either. They come off as sort of bumbling and themselves greedy. And so you get like this really nice sense in which everybody's bumbling. Everybody's sort of self-interested, but not in a cruel or ugly way just in sort of a funny way um and that made the movie go down really smooth for me at least um yeah i i I, what i'm getting there harry and what i felt about the movie too is that there it's like the plot and the story are almost two sort of different pages like most of the actual events of the movie are just filling in the gaps between like okay so the inciting incident is the establishment of a supposed new nation 
within like an existing nation. Uh, and then it's sort of like the logical extensions of, well, how do they get blank? What do they do uh, with their economy? What, what happens to all of the ways that they've already uh, tuned themselves to existing British government? And how do those go out the window? And like, you have scenes of people tearing up their IDs. Uh, you have scenes of people um, like refuting police authority to an extent uh, you never see like full scale riots and, and, uh, you know, murder or whatever. Like, so it never gets like that dark that, um, I, I wouldn't say realistic, but that like, uh, pessimistic, I guess. Um, but then like every so often again, through usually just spinning headlines on newspapers, uh, you would get like the, the story twist, like the, eventually you have, um, you know, the British government uh, is then at odds with them because they would like to keep them uh, under their thumb a little bit. They, they don't recognize the legitimacy of it, but they do on the face just to appease the public and to not appear antagonistic. And then you have like a slow, uh, the residents and uh, of, of Burgundy, of this new Burgundy in Pimlico, of the Pimlico uh, uh, autonomous zone are then rebelling against the <laughs> British, are then rebelling against the British government and, you know, stealing their water. And it backfires in sort of a comedic way, tragically comedic way of, you know, their food stores are then, uh, sunk by, by the, um, by the amount of water that they were able to steal from the British. Uh, so it's like, it's, it's madcap in a lot of ways that I think I use that word to describe kind hearts and coronets too. And just like slightly increasingly so until the product of this all is they end up capitulating to the British government and saying, okay, well the, the, I don't know if we explained this yet, but the inciting thing here is a bomb goes off in Pimlico, uh, sorry, an un, unexploded bomb, which as Harry said, is just like bomb indicates unexploded. So kind of a, kind of a redundant term. Um, but a bomb goes off in Pimlico, uh, from the war and reveals a whole stash of wealth and treasures from previous uh, uh, real quick i should i should say that jason at that point did say that pemlico is about to explode which i appreciated very much so just a I, quick aside listen i'll always keep thinking about our akira episode when i think about uh the hauntology of, of war and the uh and, and processing it um the uh fr from there like things just sort of line up in place. Like you imagine at the beginning of this story that you're going to have eventually because it's set in the real world and because it has to do with such real things, generally, you imagine them coming back to the rule of of the uh, British government. And and they do. And like everybody seems happy with that, even though they're, ba they're basically given their money back to the British, that they've then put themselves back under British control willingly so because they control more resources. So it's not like an incredibly hopeful or like uplifting story. It's just like, yeah, this was, this was all far. It might as well have been a dream, right? Like it was a few weeks, few months of, um, you know, people living completely independently of the monarchy and of, uh, British parliament and stuff. It, I, I, I think that is what I hear and what I feel when I hear, uh, you say, you say, you, Harry say things like eventually it remembers it has characters. I think that's what I feel like when I hear Cody say something like it doesn't really have legs is because, all of the things that you expect this movie to do, it kind of does. And maybe that's like with 71 years of retrospect of having watched, you know, movies from the past three quarters of a decade that have done varying degrees of that story that all of it end up at the same place. Um, but I, I guess, I guess I don't know how much to fault it for that and how much to praise it for that because it, it doesn't like make any stark or really dark, cold realizations about the, the implications of this of this comedic event and yet it like plays them out exactly like you might imagine um riffing slightly uh off the fact that this movie 
has its fascination with not just newspapers but also very other uh, various other modes of of signage um and also the fact that we just got done watching this together and i don't, i had a pretty good time uh watching this uh with you all um over stream uh w- getting done within the past half hour or so were there any uh you know, we kind of pointed them out as they came up. Um, and I, I think we mentioned a few of them here. Were there any headlines or signs that you all like gravitated towards or, or remembered specifically or fondly? Um, Burgundy bombarded with buns, I think was one of my favorites. That was one of the last ones. Were there any others? I really, nobody else had noticed. I really enjoyed Burgundy <laughs> as bombarded by buns. Yes, that, that one was good. Uh, World Sympathy for Crushed Cockneys, I think, was another one. Um, there were a few signs about Danish eels. What, and then wasn't, they talked for five minutes about eels. <laughs> you you, you might have taken notes about this, Cody. I didn't. Wasn't there one where it was like, uh, it, it was something like intimidation tactics succeed or what, starvation tactics succeed when the British yeah, are trying yep, to like that was the force them? lead line which, after, um, I believe... Uh, the the one about how um, Burgundy bullied into submission or something yeah, like that. Yeah, where it's literally yeah. like, yeah, the, the subtext there is that always they're going to be at odds with the British government until one capitulates and it's not going to be yeah. the power of Which, Her Majesty's government. It's so funny because like this is a, a movie that is on the face, it seems sort of subversive, but it gets to a really interesting uh political place just in in time capsule sense of like what was the british sentiment following world war ii and like um i think wikipedia describes it as nostalgic for post-war unity which is interesting right because it it kind of comes off that way Hmm. we're like this is as uh as i believe aaron noted this is such a fun premise on the face of it where like you can totally see the wheels spinning with when like in the first act it's established that like okay pimlico now after finding this treasure is establishing themselves as a sovereign nation basically uh they don't come out right out and say this but it's basically because they don't want to give up their treasure right which is like hey uh you know understandable even though you know immediately my thought is like well that treasure was itself stolen by the by the british uh empire so that's a whole nother funny layer to to add on to this um sort of uh retroactively but uh and then like you said jason it just sort of goes there right like it's just it's a movie exploring that premise in sort of a i don't want to call it procedural necessarily but somewhat procedural and somewhat pedestrian way but it, it gets to the fun places you would think it would go um and moreover it's sort of like it has these um these gloves on right and it really sort of pulls its punches where it doesn't really start to think about how nasty the British empire really would be to a sovereign nation attempting to establish itself within uh, British borders, except that they do lay siege to this place in the end, but the siege is sort of handled in this cute way. Um, It is implied that, or it's not implied, it's shown that that the British citizens kind of just out of bemusement end up helping out um, the new nation of Burgundy by literally tossing, throwing buns as Cody noted to them. And there's this idea that the British people would come together like they did in World War II to sort of help see this uh, strange um, set of events through. Uh, Wikipedia describes this as sort of reenacting the wartime experience of Great Britain in miniature. I don't know how true that is, but it's sort of like, it's a very like, silly sort of low stakes version of that right we're like i'm never worried about any of the people in in this town you know like when the bomb goes off because kids push this giant hoop down into the crater nobody's hurt by it 
right? It's sort of like it's it's a weirdly um, kind and uh, sort of easy watch, which I almost wonder if if the 1949-ness of this movie got there, where it's like, okay, if we're going to be sub- subversive and we're going to talk about um, government mismanagement and government greed and sort of uh, empire at work, we're going to do it really, really softly, right? And we're mostly going to talk about the fact that the British people are good and the British people stick up for one another and look out for themselves. There's sort of a Spider-Man like speech given at one point where one of the women who's part of the 19 families that are in the new Burgundy goes, uh, of course we're English. We were born English. And the fact that we're English is exactly why we're going to commit to our new nation. And there, everybody else cheers, right. And they're all on each other's side. And so there's a funny sense in which even in this new, this new Burgundy is, in effect, reestablishing the value systems of the World War II Britain that won the day. And and there's sort of a sense in which by the end of this sort of in Shakespearean comedy sense, the original conservative values that were coming into question end up winning out. Right. And in fact, are, are, if anything, um, revalidated and reconfirmed as the, the winning, um, values of the day, right. Where it was like, Oh, like, Burgundy and Great Britain were actually right in the end. And this whole messy turn of affairs only ever really served to show us that um, our value systems were righteous all along, <laughs> which is funny, but but sort of like pretty clear in the uh, when you take into consideration the fact that this was made in 1949 for a Great Britain that was still reeling from uh, post-war reconstruction. Yeah, I it's it's definitely like a fairly safe movie right and like being from 1949 you imagine that it was intended as like a salve like the unifying i think i i don't know how true it comes through in the movie but i think that like on paper this movie definitely is that that you were saying like you know a a, a, a rallying call for unity in post-war uh britain um i think that again playing a little bit of armchair historian uh the fact like Pimlico as a location, uh, it's apparently very close to uh, the House of Parliament, the Houses of Parliament. Um, so it was considered a, at the time in the early 1900s was considered a pretty like close to the center of political activity in uh, in England. Um, and uh, I mean, like Winston Churchill once lived there. So like there's there is some sentiment and some like undercurrent there to why it's it's set there and sort of like the symbology of of that place. I don't really I'm not maybe like Washington DC is, is comparable. I don't know enough about, uh, you know, the structure of, of British rule. Um, but that leads me to my next point about how, like when watching, I kept thinking about, uh, how this movie played it really safe with a lot of those accusations and a lot of those, like how it saw the people that it was portraying and the different, like, uh, I guess the different peoples and cultures within the single people and culture that was being displayed. Uh, and, and then I thought back to Ernst Lubitsch's movies and go back and listen to our few episodes on uh, Nanachka, To Me or Not To Be, um, uh, The Shop Around the Corner. I uh, really loved all those movies. But how those movies were made, like, in some cases, almost like a decade before this one. And they were a lot more, I think, incisive and insightful about the things that it was trying to be about while without, like, compromising on some of the uh, darkness and comedy of it. Like, it feels like, to me, like this film... Um, put a lot of that in the background just as like scene setting to then tell a very like uh, i guess very centrist take on the whole thing 
I don't know. I, it was, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of evidence for that, but it's just what kept ringing through my head of like, this has been, this has been done in more interesting ways about different types of people around the world and how they were processing the war. Uh, and instead of that, this is like post it, we're just feeling a certain way about it. We want to have a backpedal on that. Uh, and, and this is where we are sort of, again, running up against our um, critical historical limitations in terms of responding to this movie, in my opinion, right? Like, I'm not trying to give this movie too much of the benefit of the doubt, but I, I wonder how much context we're missing and how much of this movie's sort of myriad political statements um, would come off differently um, to contemporary audiences and, may, and maybe to more uh, critically informed audiences. Um, that being said, I, I don't disagree with you, right? Like, there's there's an overarching feeling of... Um, I guess what I would call bemusement in this movie, it, and it extends even to um, the people of Burgundy, right? Where like everybody just seems so um, bemused that this is happening to them. Like they can't believe it. They themselves think it's sort of a farcical dream. Uh, you know, like for instance, when they react to hearing the news that they're uh, a sovereign nation now. There's this very madcap scene where everybody immediately realizes that uh, the social legal constraints that they were living under being a part of Great Britain no longer apply to them. So their currency, for instance, doesn't matter to them. Their papers don't matter to them. They immediately run out. Everybody gets drunk at the bar. Everybody's celebrating the fact that they're all now rich, independent people. Um, we made the joke and the Trilons website kind of makes the joke that it's like, this is like what the people who voted for Brexit thought was going to happen to them, right? Where it's just like, oh, we're free of all of our duties and obligations as being part of a nation. Um, with the exception that we're actually supposed to kind of uh, root for the new nation of Burgundy um, in this case. But uh, right, like that that sort of characterizes the movie's whole approach to this, right? Is that like, not only is the movie just sort of having fun, but it feels like the characters themselves are just sort of along for the ride in a weird sense, right? Where like, it, it, it goes right down to the like, the establishment of the stakes where like, apart from a newspaper clipping flying past us on screen, we don't see how the new nation of Burgundy like established borders. We don't really, I mean, we see this new Duke, uh, come out of nowhere and claim lineage. And that was actually kind of a funny part for me, but it, but it is a small part. Right. And so there's like a lot of hand waving and there's a lot of focus on just the sort of like funny ideas that would arise out of this, which is not the wrong way to do this. Right. It's just something that we're not maybe entirely prepared to, um, respond to in any sort of informed fashion. Um, other than the, the way that we're responding to it now. Yeah. Uh, which I guess, in just opining internally here, uh, Cody, you brought up the phrase of um, that it maybe uh, doesn't have legs in a lot of ways. And some of the places where you wish that it would have picked it up and made it a little more consistent, I guess, if I'm not putting words in your mouth. Can you think of any ways that you would have wanted it to sort of sprout those? Any like anything that it could have done to make it a little bit stronger for you? Um. The um, I, I think I mentioned it kind of in that same breath, but uh, like other than maybe the Duke who claims lineage, maybe there are a few others scattered in there. But the the characters that were introduced to, they may be there are seedlings, you know, there are beginnings of arcs uh, in the first act or so, um, and then things kind of devolve narratively once um, 
you know, borders start to get set up. There are pop-up stands for like uh, immigration and customs procedures. Um, the, the Sebastian uh, definitely he cucks some guy, and we don't really like that. Could have been something, uh, something not pertinent to like the politics that this movie is kind of satirizing um, or you know making a farce of. Um, but like rounding out some of these characters, making some of the making some of those scenes some of those arcs more memorable um to give people something again like timeless is maybe not the best word for it but like something that transcends um like a a a geopolitical um situation that might may or may not necessarily age uh super well depending on the time you're living in uh obviously as it's been touched on it you know we're not super competent, but we are competent enough to kind of see this in, you know, recent, uh, you know, recent current events. Um, but I don't know, human behavior, human uh, joy and suffering through characters experiencing ups and downs. I would have liked to have seen more of that. And kind of, uh, I, I think you bringing up Blue Bitch, Jason, was a great sort of... Um, you know, armchair director type of, of movie because he does, you do see that rounding out uh, of, of you know, he, he writes for characters in a way that this movie kind of desperately could have used, I think. Agreed. Uh, one character that should have had more time was uh, Professor Hatton Jones, played by Margaret Rutherford, who I've been meaning to bring up because she's probably the only good, uh, other than the, the character who is like the successor uh, to Burgundy. I think that Margaret Rutherford as Professor Hatton Jones is probably the only like really good character in this movie. She is the historian that uh, authenticates all of the artifacts and documents um, in the movie. And she's given like three really good scenes that she steals like pretty single handedly, all of them. Um, and she was a great actress uh, kind of just on her own. I mean, outside of this movie, she did a lot of stuff. The importance of being earnest. Uh, she won an Academy Award uh, for the VIPs in 1963, which is not a movie that I'd heard of. Uh, and supposedly it's not great, but supposedly she was very, very good in that. So I just wanted to point her out because this is a movie which has kind of a very large cast and you see people, you know, maybe for one or two minutes at a time. And I think she stood out quite a bit. Yeah, she's also sort of at the heart of maybe what I would have responded to Jason's uh, question with, um, which is that, like, there's some pretty good Shin Godzilla-esque satirization of um, British culture and customs and government uh, processes in this movie, right? Where, like, you can see how the premise would be really ripe for that, where it's like, this is essentially about a bunch of people realizing that they are no longer bound to a nation's rules because they're not a part of that nation. And in the process, sort of realizing how arbitrary those rules are and how those rules are not really established for their own benefit, so much as the benefit of, uh, if not necessarily structures of power, then certainly structures of like organization and control. Um, It would have been really funny to, to look at those twin uh, motivations, right? Where it was like, one, like living under the British empire is a strange thing. Um, and sort of an alienating thing. Uh, and watching this sort of like weird anarcho-communist group of 19 families, uh, come together and and, like pursue a, a means of living and conducting, um, uh, like the establishment of a nation that, that is not subject to, 
um, traditional capitalistic uh, control measures would have been really funny and interesting. And then also particularly using that character sort of to examine how arbitrary and silly like the conglomeration of power within specifically Great Britain is right where it, where it's like like she is so interested in finding this Duke of Burgundy who's just some guy who comes to this neighborhood and they're immediately like well like this is the guy he's in charge now and like it ends up working out for them because this guy immediately puts in control the people who they want in control and it's sort of like a wink wink nudge nudge thing to give them like like political uh legitimacy the fact that that he has this that they have this duke now but to like to find this duke they professor hatton jones margaret rutherford's character she like goes to the books right and she she like finds his lineage and like proves that well like now we have a legitimate reason to do this to like give this guy political control that he can give back to us because i found it here in this book and right and like there's something funny and satirizing about the british royal family in general about that right where it's like well in order to do this thing in order to like give the people who should be in charge power like we had to find this uh like bloodline loophole that we could trace back and because that's the way things work here right where it's just like how there's a, there's an interesting parallel there to like well like we found this this gold that was bequeathed to this nation of burgundy that hasn't existed and now these people just have it because that's what the charter says there's like a funny critique of the the way in which our uh, like legal systems don't represent what's actually like logical. Uh, that would have been really fun to explore some more. Um, again, I don't know that the movie does that or not, right? Because I don't have a really great understanding of this movie's um, sort of like political ley lines in accordance with what's happening in the time in which it was filmed. But those things are there, I think. Um, and, and that's about as far as I can go in recognizing them. <laughs> I, I I similarly don't think that that's what this movie was actually going for, but I do like the reading of like all of their quote unquote revolutionary action and their secession from uh, the British mainland being ultimately like still falling into essentially right. what, what is a bloodline of like a monarchic bloodline, right? Uh, they recreate they, the absurdities that they ostensibly are um, seceding from, right? Yeah, I really like that as the overall, like something that maybe puts it a little bit above pedestrian. And you know, hey, in the eyes of the critic, it can be anything. Um, so I, I choose to enjoy it that way then, uh, because I don't see a whole lot else tying it together. The, the notion of, I brought up, I guess all of us brought up the heat wave. I really like how kind of that is normally in movies, at least that I've, I haven't, you know, no, no scholar on it, but at least that I've seen, it's usually considered, like I said earlier, like a great equalizer. Like it slows down the plot for everybody. Everybody is impositioned by a heat wave. Everybody is like, uh, constantly either cooped up or like, I'm thinking of stray dog. And that's why I brought, I asked a question about stray dog while we were watching this movie, Cody was because, um, that movie is very like the whole movie is just colored by the fact that it's a heat wave in Tokyo. Um, and in this, it's like, the only people that suffer from this heat wave, at least outwardly, are the people in uh, Burgundy, because the British, the main, like the, uh, those under the the official British monarchy, have the resources to deal with the heat wave. They have water. They have um, uh, sewer. They have uh, I don't know what air conditioning was like in 1949, but they have some form of of refrigeration that they can rely on. Um, so it's not ultimately. It's not ultimately like even nature isn't a great equalizer in that respect. Even nature can be refuted by those in power. Can be 
controlled and managed. Um, and it's not until like there is a more direct action against that, that then like things can actually be made equal. I guess that's something of a synthesis of, of what you were saying, Harry, and what I want the movie to be like, but I don't, again, I don't think it's very well supported by what's in the movie. I think it's just more reading in than anything. Yeah. Heat waves for me have always kind of, um, represented other tensions that were building up into a certain point, right? It's always represented racial tensions or, uh, you know, certain violence that's been happening or or what have you class tension. Um, and it doesn't really do that in this movie. Um, and I, I think part of that is that, uh, the movie does feel as we've talked about, maybe a little blunt in a lot of its satire, right? It, it, it fits, uh, pretty squarely and with a lot of like British satire that I've seen, which, uh, feels often a lot, uh, yeah, a lot more blunt than like a lot of American political satire where, you know, our leaders are portrayed or the British leaders are portrayed as kind of oafish, but like the only people who are more oafish than the politicians being made fun of are the actual citizens themselves, uh, where like, yeah, like the first thing that happens after this town or this area is uh, considered like this independent state is they all just go to the pub and they just start drinking heavily, right? Um, that's not like... I don't know. The The whole idea of this heat wave kind of tying into that doesn't seem to fit because there's doesn't seem to be tensions in the background at the start of the film. It seems like a pretty um, seems like a place that is. You know, there are certain problems with rationing of food and supplies and whatnot, but that's not uh, specific to any sort of demographic or certain issues that the area is facing, I guess. Yeah, really well said, right? Where like when I see a when I see a heat wave, if we're all talking about heat waves, right? It's like it's like the most uh, obvious sort of like metaphor for escalating tension possible, and sort of like an overarching citywide or or um, world of film wide tension that is possible. And the movie establishes that apparently, sort of like in parallel with as Aaron noted, like the the fact that there's food rationing the fact that there's sort of an undercurrent of dissatisfaction with the way that the british government is handling uh the post-world war ii reconstruction um the class tensions maybe with uh pimlico the fact that it's a sort of a slum um there's this early establishing moment where there's this giant crater caused by world war ii that is in the backyards of everybody in pimlico they're talking about what to make of it And one of the people from the neighborhood has this plan for a park and the plan is shot down by the British government um, because it's just not realistic. Right. And so there's some misgivings about that. And that becomes the sort of rallying cry of the people of Burgundy where it's like, now we have the chance to make this thing that we want to make. It would have been really great to see more of that, right. To see them being like, okay, what is, what is a nation that actually is representative of our desires want instead of that, it really sort of picks on the people of Burgundy a little bit, right? Where like they're motivated by greed, even though they're they're sort of like that greed is is seen as sort of cute and uh, understandable rather than ugly. Um, the British government is not ever really portrayed as greedy themselves or bloodthirsty so much as they are portrayed as like sort of a like a concerned parent almost. Um, and so yeah, like I guess I'm just saying what Aaron already said, but like the the heat wave metaphor is 
sort of ill-served by the lightness of the touch of the rest of this movie. And then, of course, it breaks at the very end of the movie um, to symbolize how sort of the tensions have resolved now that Burgundy has come back into the fold, right? And that is itself resolved in a really pleasant, easy way where they just decide that they're going to loan the treasure to the British government um, and then come back into the fold, have their utilities turned back on, essentially become part of uh, Britain again. Everything is fine. The sort of our fears about World War II reconstructionism representing some sort of um, social change for the worse, I guess, uh, have been resolved and things are going to be all right. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that if I squint at this movie, then I can see the kind of movie that I think we're all I think it's always like a trap to want a movie to be something else, right? But I think if I squint at it, I can kind of see a movie that is a little sharper in its societal critiques, right? Like there's a heat wave. There is a the the image of a bomb kind of unexploded, a remnant from World War II sitting in the center of town just waiting to blow up, right? Like those are all images that fit very neatly into a film that could be uh, very sharp, Uh and again, the you know the end of this movie, this idea of this rain kind of flooding away uh, and, and dropping the temperature down, like it's like it's like there. If I really convince myself, like oh, is this a movie that's about uh, the sense of community that was gathered during World War II and how that's that's kind of lost, like after the war, and how that sense of community has completely gone away? Maybe I think I could probably convince myself if I really wanted to, but I don't think it comes off that way in the movie. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, and and I think that the probably the biggest reason why is that there's a total homogeneity of values and um, perspective among everybody in this movie, right? Like, we're never given any reason to believe that the people of Pimlico slash Burgundy are any different than the the British, and and like even the like kind of class implications are not actually really established very well, and so there's not there's not even a, a sense of class, right? Like. A movie that was actually tackling this, again, I don't want to play armchair director, that's probably a trap, but like there would be some sense that the people of Pimlico slash Burgundy were actually disenfranchised and alienated by uh, pre-World War II Britain and now have a real reason not to want things to go back to the way they were and are now fighting to establish something new and better for them. In fact, with the opportunity that was given to them literally by the breakdown of society in world war II, right? Like the bomb and the heat wave are both symbolic of this opportunity. Instead, this movie isn't even willing to talk about the idea of a difference of perspective, right? Like in my mind, the people of Burgundy needed to have this outlandish, um, schism from Great Britain in order to have any sort of differentiating um, perspective whatsoever. We had to invent this gold buried underneath their neighborhood in order to talk about the ways in which these people could possibly be different from the people around them. When in fact, like any other, like a, a movie that was actually interested in, in sort of a, a social um angle would be able to find real world differences, right? And and sort of if if only use that gold as a metaphor for real world differences. Whereas I don't think they exist in this movie. This movie is largely about people with the same values and perspective and even socioeconomic status being brought back into the fold of people who look and act exactly like them. And so that 
a lot of the sort of social commentary and messaging that we are sort of um, yearning for is just not here. And I think it's probably not here for pretty clear political reasons, which are that um, when you're talking, when you're trying to make a movie about how we're all in this together in the end, uh, you portray people who are actually all in it together uh, as opposed to um, reality. (laughs) Yeah. Without, I guess without that real like self-awareness and sting, it just kind of becomes like, Oi, we're on all the day. Like, it it just feels like again like like a farce like there's not much meat and bone meat and potatoes there. Do we have anybody? Uh, is Jason back? Can he can he help me pronounce that properly? The uh, what what British people call going on vacation? Oh, I believe we call it on holiday, love. Thank you, Jason. Uh, I'm so glad to share a name with you. Um, true true Greek roots. Pleasure is all mine, right? Right. <laughs> uh, I are we Harry? If if you can uh, grab the mic back from Jason, do you do you think it's I guess I want to make sure we've emptied the coffers and that it's time for that segment. Well, I think that gets Hattie's time, right? He's been talking much longer than I have. I think it's only fair that I get the microphone for the uh, duration. Let me tell you what you can do, Jason. You can uh, help me. Uh, we I, I do a duet with Harry, but it sounds like he's probably left the room. Maybe maybe to go pee or something. Um, can you help me introduce our last segment uh, where we have Cody read some of his notes he took? Oh, it's my favorite segment to fall. It would be my pleasure. I believe it is time for <gasps> Cody's, Cody's noties. I am. Um, well, I, before I get into the noties, I guess my first note is I am supremely honored uh, to have uh, Sir Jason Statham uh, sing that, that opening jingle. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Um, a real, a real treat. Um, we are very pro Statham around these parts. Um, so it means the world. Um, I do have a couple of noties and if y'all get through those without any issue, I do have a little bit of a game, uh, to cap off the noties. So get your thinking caps on. I don't know. Thinking caps. Uh, I wanted to shout out a few, uh, historical figures that have roots in Pimlico. Uh, so for those, oh no, this is un- this is not related to to the quiz. This is uh, oh okay. Um, this is something you can tune out while you calibrate your brains uh, for the the quiz later on. This is this is just going to be filler. Jokes um, on you. I'm going to listen. Okay. Well, oh, oh god, get my ass. Anarchy. Uh, so- for those who uh, are listening to this and are like, hmm, what, what the hell's a Pimlico? Um, Pimlico is actually uh, an area of central London in the city of Westminster, uh, unrelated to the Westminster Dog Show. Um, not fun fact. Uh, it was built as a southern extension to the neighboring, uh, neighboring Belgravia. Uh, and some previous residents have included Winston Churchill, Lawrence Olivier, uh, and a few, a few others that I wanted to highlight, one of which was... Uh, Major Walter Clopton Wingfield, who was uh, is generally credited as the inventor of lawn tennis. Um, he was an early pioneer for transitioning uh, what can be referred to as, quote unquote, real tennis, which is basically just indoor tennis to the outdoors. Uh, he began marketing his new version of the game in 1874. And from about a year period, uh, from July 1874 to June 1875, uh, he sold just over a thousand of his lawn tennis sets um, and going by Wikipedia. Uh, and I quote, they were sold mainly to the aristocracy. Um, this was, um, yes, go ahead. This is just 
when you say lawn, that's just tennis ass. That's what I know is tennis. That's tennis ass tennis. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there are. Yeah, I, I won't go get into the, the nitty gritties. But yeah, I think real tennis, quote unquote, real tennis and or tennis had some different rules. Um, slightly well, different up, up until that time, we referred to it as boppins, didn't we? Ah, uh, yes, that's right. Thank you. Uh, yes, right? yes, boppins, uh, the famous uh, extinct game. But um, but yeah, outside, uh, hit the bumping around, play some boppins. This is gotta be called. I, got, I gotta say, I am so be. so glad to have the unique perspective of uh, Sir Jason Statham OSB on our podcast. How do, how do we even land this guy? You know, it's funny. You're you're all so complimentary to me now, but I listen to your Hobbs and Shaw podcast. <laughs> I was the only person defending your acting in that fucking movie. Everybody else was saying Jason Statham, not a good fucking action star. I said you're very good. So, you know, uh, Jason Statham. No one likes a kiss ass, Aaron. Jason, well, I, I'm going to kiss ass right here. Uh, Jason Statham, let it be known, or maybe you've forgotten. In case you have, I am the 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 trial of uh, member who ranked that movie the highest, gave it the highest rating on Letterboxd. Um, yeah, that was. It's fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> it's really fucked up. You gave that higher than all the other Fast and Furious Jason Statham's going to kick your ass. Jason Statham was in other Fast and Furious movies, which are better than Hobbs. Anyway, we don't got it. Cody, continue with the So, uh, in any case, uh, Major Wingfield, in 1997, he was inducted to the International Boppins Hall of Fame, or excuse me, the International Tennis Hall of Fame uh, for his contributions to Boppins. Um, so, shout out to, to Major Wingfield. Um, one other resident I wanted to shout out was Sheila Scott, uh, who's an aviator who broke over a hundred aviation records, including a 34,000 mile flight, uh, that she did in 1971. And during that time, uh, during that flight, rather, she became the first person to fly over the North pole in a small aircraft. Uh, she was born Sheila Christina Hopkins, uh, and early in life she had, intended to pursue a career in acting. Um, looking at her IMDb page right now, there are no like actress entries for her, just uh, like appearances as herself on talk shows and game, a few game shows and stuff like Excellent. that. And we're so proud to have her on our podcast. Thank you so much for being here. With oh, me. hello! <laughs> it's me! Oh, Sheila, I didn't know you were going to be here. Yes, it's Sheila! Hello! I was just uh, I was just um, telling the boys here that uh, you had changed your name to Sheila Scott um, oh, when you were yes. going to pursue acting, and then the name just stuck. Do I have that right? Yes, I am. You oh, know, that's me, mom. I got. I got to. I got to say, Sheila. If, if, I, if I might say, as, as that a, you, mom. I, yes, a, 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 trust, a trusted source. I missed told, you. A trusted source told me that uh, she had a that you had a turbulent turbulent childhood and did not do well at the Alice Otley School, nearly being expelled several times. Do you want to explain any of those? I smoked in the restrooms and you, during ma'am, geography. Ma'am, what? I smoked in the restrooms during geography. Oh, that's mom, isn't it, son? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. He had to. He, that fucking chick just broke into my goddamn apartment. Where'd she go? I, oh my Jason god! She just left my bedroom window. Jason, let me know if you see a very old left. British lady. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're on their way to each other now. Let me know if she comes back. Well, let me know if she gets back. I was actually just about to, to praise her uh, for being appointed an officer of the Order of the British Empire uh, in 1968, um, and. She, 
you know, uh, Sheila can maybe confirm this if if she's around. She wasn't. Is that you didn't you didn't start your life in Pimlico, but you actually that's that's where you spent your final years and and where you passed away. Sorry, she she was yelling from outside my window. I think I've scared her out oh, of okay. the room. Yeah. No, well, I believe well, then she we'll and Jason are uh, about to have a tearful reunion outside of uh Oh wow. Uh, they're fist He's fighting, dude. They're straight oh, up shit. Yeah, it's bad. I think that's just how what they do in their families. I think that's sort of a ah! Yeah. stiff British upper lip sort of thing. Yeah. Anyway, Cody, uh what uh anybody else? Oh, sure. Uh I'm just just those two um that I that I that kind of tickled my fancy. It sounded like Jason was uh, reading the same Wikipedia article that I was. Um, so no, I, I think we got a friend, I, a friend from Britain that I was being fed that gotcha. information. So you heard straight from the source. That's that's better yeah. uh, investigative yeah. journalism. Journalism, wiki. Yeah, wiki. It's a oh, British name. Gotcha. Um, well, here to to conclude the the noties. Um, I had a, a quick thing for you all. Um, so what I have here, I got a list of the top five 1949 released movies sorted by popularity on Letterboxd. And I'm hoping the no, three of you can fill in those blanks. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll open the floor if they're without doing any, you know, looking of things up. If there's, if there are any guesses, uh, or kind any, you know, kind hearts and coronets is in fact, number five. Let's Ooh. fucking go. I'm out of that. The number, the fifth most popular or popular being, uh, presumably people who have logged it on Letterboxd. Uh, yes, Kind Hearts and Coronets is number five. Um, any other preliminary guesses? Who's uh, uh, at the ready to if we're stuck? It wasn't. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry, here we go. Can I look up 1949 in film and make guesses that way? That's Absolutely not. That's cheating. No way. Right? Yeah, that, right. okay. that is the definition so of cheating. Are these, are these films that we already know, or are these... These are, these are four that I'm confident that or the remaining four uh, are ones that I'm confident that you all can get. Um, uh, I will say one of them. One of them we even talked about uh, on this episode a little bit ago. Um, an, another heat wave movie, if you will. Oh, uh, do the right thing came out in 1949. <laughs> Jesus Christ, that was ahead of time. Twelve Angry Men. Not uh, no, nope, that's 57. Yeah. I believe. I was gonna say yeah. No, what? Um, it's a previous episode. This one that I'm thinking of. Oh, one of the Lubish films. Uh, we actually talked about it also during one of our our potty breaks in this movie. I know, uh, I know what you're talking about. Release. This is British box office or of like international? All movies ever created oh, okay. and released so, in 1949. Stray Dog, yes. Stray Dog, ding 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 ding. That is uh, the third most popular movie on Letterboxd wow. as far as 1949 releases go. So we've got one, two, and four remaining um number four is actually one that we also talked about prior to i think before we started watching when we were making uh making some some quips about uh, a famous actor of the time um mr cagney white heat no that was that was the 30s uh nope white heat is correct white heat is correct white heat is, yeah 30s that is a 1949 release brother yeah james cagney white heat. that, that is that is the fourth most popular uh, movie on Letterboxd for 1949 releases. So we just have numbers wow. one and two remaining. All right. I'll leave this to you guys. I got two of those. I got I got one of them. Harry, you got to you clearly you got to step up to the plate here, my man. I, uh, uh, I, I thought we were doing highest grossing and not 
most popular on Letterboxd, so I was not. Uh, that's okay. Yeah, I did say most popular on Letterboxd uh, a few times, but that's okay, <laughs> Harry. Uh, Harry, you should be able to get number two. Uh, it is a movie that you loved, uh, directed by our boy Ozu. Oh, uh, good oh, morning. Shit. Is it um, late spring? Not late spring. Ding 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 ding. That is the second most popular movie on oh, Letterboxd. It should be the most popular movie. releases go. Um, Number one uh, is all that's that's left here. Um, let's see if I can give any juicy clues. I touched uh, it, it was like 1951 or something, right? So I don't, damn it. Right. Uh, 19, yeah, 1954 or six or something. Yeah, mid 50s. Um, but th- this movie uh, that we're trying to guess, Jason, you have logged on Letterboxd. Oh, um, it is, let's, um, Orson Welles uh, is in it. <laughs> Um, oh wow! Takes place uh, in Vienna, Austria. It's M. Nope, that is. No, I want to say thirty-one. Uh, that's also um, what's it? Peter Lorre. Yeah. Um. <sighs> let's let's see here. What what other? Uh, How about you just give us this movie, bud. No, no, no. Here, give us the fucking movie. So in uh. Okay, how about this? How about this? When we're when we're sounding off, at, when we're sounding off at the at the start of uh, this past the, at this episode, uh, Jason was uh, was the first man to say something. I was the second man, and uh, which, and Harry which was would make uh, me the third man. The third man. Which, which ding, I haven't ding, seen it. I want to see really badly. It makes it's sense very, that very that's good. number one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that was Maybe the I'll game. Those are the top, top five. five. So, yeah. To reiterate the third man, late spring, stray dog, white heat and kind hearts and coronets, uh, in that order. Gotcha. 1949 release. Yeah. I can't believe that's all movies that, well, minus one that I've seen. Wow. It, uh, that was it, honestly, it drops off, uh, after that considerably, it was kind <laughs> of a slow year, uh, in retrospect, but, um, but yeah, though, those are the noties folks. Thank you. God, what a good segment. I love that, that we've got that. I love that that's our ace in the hole every episode. All right. Well, that is our episode on Passport to Pimlico from 1949. If you've listened this far, uh, you might as well go see the movie um, or pay for a ticket and then watch it at home. Uh, it is not commercially available anywhere. So good luck. The Internet Archive, which I believe, is has real brutal because it, it, yeah. it really it really calls for subtitles, which you're not going to be able it to does. get. So and apologies anybody, for that. If anybody on the Internet tells you that they have subtitles, they are lying through their ass and teeth. It is a lie. Do not believe them. Or they uh, pulled a Jason Daphnis and localized it themselves, um, which, which would be you do rad. Need and you should yeah. send me those subtitles if you have Yo. them. Uh, well, that uh, movie is playing at the Trilon this coming Friday through the weekend. Uh, check it out. Um, have a great time. If you see a movie at the Trilon, uh, be safe, be careful, uh, masks and all of those other precautions that they, that they impose rightfully. So, uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. Uh, you can find me at Nintendo Office. you can find my podcast, Trilove at Trilove podcast, and you can find the Trilon at Trilon cinema or at Trilon.org. I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. You can find me at Shiitake Harry. And I'm Bug Jason Statham. You can find my podcast, All Bangers, No Mash, anywhere you find podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter. If I have a Twitter, I can't remember. It's probably handled by my publicist. Anyway. He doesn't miss, ladies and gentlemen. He does not miss. I do not see a Jason Statham Twitter account. Sorry, Jason. Ah, oh, bollocks.
Yeah, you're I'll get, get over it. Uh, my name is Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at Arby. Please, I do not remember the name of the woman that I was pretending to be her. So you can't find her on Twitter. But uh, yeah. Podcast. This is Burgundy. 